I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Murder in Oregon is a production of iHeartRadio. After Mike Frankie's death, gossip in the drug and crime community linked two men to it. Johnny Krause, who actually confessed to the murder, and Tim Natividad. In our last episode, Natividad's childhood friend, Vince Taylor, said he believed Tim could easily have been the man who killed Frankie. And he wasn't the only one. There were a number of people in the underworld who right away thought that Natividad had been involved. Uh, One of them was Greg Johnson, his, uh, his name was then. He was one of the inmates who came forward in the 86 investigation. And uh, he's back out on the streets in the drug business again. Greg Johnson first met Timothy Natividad in the Salem drug scene in the early 80s. In 1983, Johnson was jailed for robbery charges, essentially taking the rap for Natividad, locking in their association. And when Johnson was released in 1986, the two reconnected. The morning after Frankie's murder, his drug partner, John Bray, was driving down the street uh, going home from work release, and uh, Greg hailed him and got him to drive into a parking lot there in Roths, and Brace told me he, Greg Johnson was sweating, he was, he was obviously scared, and had taken a lot of meth. And he told him that he had picked up Tim Natividad the night before uh, at the dome building, and, and that's all Bray could get out of him, but it was clear he said that uh, Johnson was trying to tell him he knew something about the murder. I'm Lauren Bright Pacheco, and this is Murder in Oregon. Nigel Jaquis is a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter who writes for the Willamette Week in Portland. He's a tall, lean man with a direct intellectual way about him that mirrors his meticulous reporting. In 2007, Natividad's drug buddy, Greg Johnson, reached out to Nigel from an Oregon prison 
claiming to have information about who killed Michael Frankie. I was skeptical, uh, as you would be, but he said enough to make me willing to go see him. And uh, he had uh, enough information and enough specific details and a good enough story that I think I went and saw him four times. He said that he had often served as muscle or backup for Natividad, that he would come to drug deals with a gun and sort of be the enforcer, and that Natividad had asked him to drive him to the office where Michael Frankie was killed. It's called the Dome Building. And that he later uh, picked Natividad up and also had driven him to a, another location in Salem subsequently where Natividad received an envelope full of cash. And the man Johnson claims delivered that envelope of cash? An Oregon Department of Corrections official. And not just any official. He was actually the warden at the Oregon State Prison, which was then the largest prison in the state. So his story was fit into a narrative that many people had speculated about, which was that Frankie's murder was uh, not a car prowl gone bad, as it has been portrayed by law enforcement, but was a contract killing orchestrated by corrupt prison officials who were threatened by Michael Frankie. You found his story plausible? I found it plausible. Again, I couldn't prove it because key players are dead. So the question was, what did Greg Johnson have to gain by coming forward with this story? When I talked to him, he was facing a 20-year sentence. And his stated motivation was in the 1980s, 1986, I believe, he had been a witness in a corruption proceeding against senior Department of Corrections officials. He had basically said, here's what I saw, and these guys are corrupt. Just a reminder... That's the same 1986 LB Day investigation into corruption within corrections. So Johnson said since 1986, he'd considered himself a marked man for speaking out against that corruption. But why would he come forward with this two decades later? What did he have to lose? Then he said he knew that Department of Corrections officials had ordered Michael Frankie's murder. So he thought he was doubly vulnerable. So his view was he's going to do 20 years in the Oregon State prison system. He's a marked man for two reasons. He's unlikely to survive. So at the time he had uh, spoken to me, he had already asked to be in administrative segregation. People call that the whole. In other words, he wanted to be separated from the from the mainstream prison population. So his state of motivation was he wanted to serve his time in another state where he was not under the thumb uh, and possible retribution of people that he thought were corrupt. Whether you believe Greg Johnson or not, like Vince Taylor, it's another association between Tim Natividad and Michael's murder. And another connection tying Natividad to the murder would soon come forward. Conrad Garcia is a very unusual character. He's obviously intelligent. He's, he's artistic. At least at one point in his life, he was quite out of control. At this time, he'd been serving, I think, 11 years for a knife point rape. He was due to get out on parole. In fact, uh, he was scheduled for release on parole a week before the murder. Then about six months after Michael Frankie is murdered, he goes to his counselor in prison and tells the counselor, that he knows something about the murder. He said, uh, says he was approached by Tim Natividad to do the murder, and he knows that Scott McAllister, the prison lawyer, arranged it. Is there record of that? I pulled up the 
report by Lawrence uh, Conrad's counselor, and it says, this is what the task force wrote from his report. Lawrence was interviewing inmate Garcia concerning an institutional matter. During the conversation, Garcia told Lawrence, Mr. Frankie was killed by Timothy David Natividad. This was arranged by Scott McAllister. So that's the information they had. Wow. Now, the police have an official memo from someone in corrections that they just can't ignore. The counselor, Lawrence, then does what he's required to do, and he writes a short memorandum on what Conrad has told him uh, and sends it to the Frankie Task Force, which, of course, creates a problem for them because it's now part of the public record, and they can't pretend it doesn't exist. So they, they send one of the lead detectives, Ken Pasenia, to talk to Conrad. And it's clear from Pasenia's report that they're not really much interested in talking about Natividad, and, and he doesn't even ask about McAllister. The lead detective on the task force doesn't even ask Conrad Garcia about it. Or if he did, he sure didn't write anything about it. I've, I've got his report here, too. Nothing about McAllister. So then what happens to Natividad as a suspect in the investigation at that point? So he's effectively dropped, and that's pretty much the end of Natividad as far as the official investigation goes. That's incredible. They can't pursue him without pursuing McAllister. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. 
It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Conrad Garcia's name comes up in connection with another Salem criminal when it comes to theories about Mike's murder, Buck Burgess. Remember that name? That's the guy who lived at the house near the Dome Building. The same guy Johnny Krause, the man who confessed to Mike's murder, then recanted, said was involved. Here's Kevin. Charles James Belden Buster, a.k.a. Buck Burgess, a.k.a. Bear, a.k.a. Teddy Bear. Multiple convictions. And according to Kevin, Burgess was also charged with murder, but served time for manslaughter. In California, where he killed a baby, numerous robberies, assaults, assault in the prison here in Oregon. He was a, uh, a person of interest back in the New Mexico prison riots. was a major shit disturber, from what I understand. And he was an inmate down there, along with, I think, about 40 or 50 other inmates from Oregon that Oregon had shipped down there because of overcrowding in the Oregon system. He was formerly married to Melody Garcia, Melody Darlene Rothschild was her maiden name. Melody was subsequently married to Conrad Garcia, who was an inmate doing time at the Oregon State Penitentiary. And Conrad Nick Garcia, Buck Burgess's cellmate. Melody and the drugs turn out to be a common thread that connects them all. While Melody passed a few years ago, we spoke with her daughter, Carrie, who was subjected to her mother's drug dealing, abuse, and depravity. My name is Carrie Rothschild. I am the daughter of Melody Rothschild Garcia Burgess. I don't know, honestly. Melody Rothschild Burgess, then Garcia. My mother's, I think, fourth and fifth husband were inmates. Instead of dating, she married people. She's married eight times. The the death certificate was a nightmare. I handled that. (laughs) Carrie and her siblings had been raised in an upper-middle-class home in Utah until her mother abruptly decided to divorce their father and move to Oregon to marry Burgess, a distant cousin. That's when their lives and mother really began to downhill spiral. My mom was on methamphetamines. She was using them with an IV drug use, and they're often, you know, laced with different things. And um, there were people that were doing heroin there as well. Um, And I don't believe she was really into heroin. Her primary drug was crank, is what they called it at that time. And, um, but there were all sorts of drugs around us. 
In person, Carrie is slim and delicate. She apparently inherited her striking looks from her mother, and her refined features are very much in keeping with her regal last name. But she projects a toughness and uneasiness about her that reflects her abusive upbringing. It was just a nightmare. The whole thing was a nightmare. It was just complete insanity. Um, My mom was just not a mother. We were... I don't really know, like as far as uh, my sister and brother and I, there was no sense of family. My mom was just completely doing everything and anything, you know, for her own self, for visitation, her life completely involved getting up and going to the prison. She literally would do her makeup in the morning and go do prison visitation, come back and do her makeup and go to the prison again. And that was absolutely the center of her life. Like, that was it. So she'd go to the prison two times a day to visit one of her husbands at the time. It was always Nick. That's always what I remember. It was always Nick. Conrad Garcia. Mm -hmm. And actually, the whole thing was, she was completely, insanely obsessed with it. It was, that was her entire life was, I got to get him out. It was... All she talked about was Nick and this conspiracy about getting him out, and you were either with her or against her, and that was it. Aside from visiting the man she was obsessed with, Melody's other, perhaps main purpose, was moving drugs into the prison and contraband out. I know she was bringing drugs, and I know she was getting jewelry, So those would be the two things I would say. And when I say jewelry, I mean it was always gold and uh, different kinds of jewels in the jewelry. So um, and bringing drugs in and it would be in balloons and different things. Melody would even take Carrie and her siblings to the prison for twisted family visits. Especially at the beginning, she wanted us to embrace Nikki as our stepdad. Actually, she wanted us to call him dad and things like that. So, and he was young. He was as old as my oldest sister. Young, good-looking guy, soft-spoken. Really, I mean, looking back, I see, like, he, he came across as a really nice guy. He was very well-mannered, um, gentle, you know, It was like, crawl up on his lap and love your daddy. (laughs) Melody's multiple daily visits to the prison would obviously have raised red flags and violated visitation protocol. But it was allowed to happen, and it happened openly. When we were at the prison, it seemed like she knew, knew everyone who worked there. She did have a few people she knew. She was talking to them. But she had been going to the prison for visitation. So she'd be like, you stay right here, you know, and she'd walk up and talk to people. And she had a a way about her, though. She was never in fear. Like, she knew what she was doing while we were there. Here's Kevin's take. She's moving a lot of drugs into the joint. She's going in to visit three times a day, seven days a week which is unheard of. You've got to have some sort of connection there to get in that many visits. You're not allowed that many that often, unless your name doesn't go on the visitation records. So you must have known somebody that could get you in without documenting your visit. 
look back now and like remember she didn't seem scared or and they I remember her having to go into the bathroom and I think that's what they did is they put stuff in the bathroom and then the inmate would go in the bathroom and get it and you know put it in their butt or mouth or wherever Melody's interaction with the prisoners and corrections officials wasn't limited to prisons, and Carrie's home soon deteriorated into a disturbing flophouse. Due to overcrowding in the prisons, inmates would be given periodic passes, and they'd wind up crashing at Melody's place to very physically reconnect with their wives or girlfriends. They would do, like, conjugal visits at your house. Yes. So while they were getting out on pass to do whatever job it was to, you know, trade for an early parole release. Their wives would be able to meet them at our house and see them that night or nights while they were out. And nobody would be the wiser. Yep. And according to Kevin, prisoner passes were also passed out for favors. The people that were involved could get inmates out at any time at their leisure <laughs> without uh, their permission slip getting signed <laughs> from, the, from the maximum security prison. It got to be pretty bad around there. And I remember one guy that he was a biker that most people would not talk to this guy. He came in, he looked at our house, he looked at our fridge, he saw nothing in there. He looked at me and he said, I'm taking you to the store to get some groceries. He filled his saddlebags with groceries. We got back on his bike and came back. <laughs> I think that's all he said <laughs> the whole time that he was at our house. There were some scary people. <laughs> like, I probably shouldn't have gone on his motorcycle. You know, like, I think back, but, like, he probably wasn't a rapist or child abuser, you know, um, but he was probably out to do a hit. So 24-7, there are people coming in and out of your Constantly. house? Constantly. Are and people they're like, crashing at your house? They're fucking, they're ruining things, they're stealing, they're doing drugs, there's needles. I mean, it's horrible. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, 
the Apollo Jim murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Carrie would have been barely 13 when her older sister Christy fled the dysfunctional chaos. Carrie lost her protector and the room they shared when a move to another house left her with no space of her own. I know this sounds so weird, but all of a sudden my bedroom became under the kitchen table. <laughs> I just took blankets and I piled them over. I made a bedroom for myself under there because that was the only space I had that I could create to have like, you know, privacy. So that was my bedroom. So God, it seems so weird now, but Tracy had a bedroom because she had now, I think two kids. I can't even remember. The situation around the house eventually got so dangerous that Melody finally decided to send Carrie away. She sent me away because she said that they were trafficking kids and she was trying to keep me safe. And so I left. And of all the places Melody could have sent Carrie, including her biological father's functional home, Melody chose Conrad Garcia's mother. It was so weird. Like, I look back and I'm like, why didn't you just send me to my dad's? But So I'm in Hellsburg, California with a Jehovah Witness in like a liberal area where they're like teaching sex education and she won't sign off on me being able to participate. And I'm like coming from this totally like interesting situation, like, where things were not exactly conservative. (laughs) But Carrie had grown up around the type of people her mom surrounded herself with, and at that point was using drugs herself. So she willingly returned to the dysfunction she knew. I remember calling my mom, and she's like, you better get back here. And I'm like, no. 
you know, you sent me away. <laughs> and then uh, eventually I ended up getting on a, I think it was a Greyhound bus, maybe. And that's really when Tim got in, Brewster got in my life, right around there. That Tim, or Rooster as Carrie calls him, is Tim Natividad. Tim became one of the main suppliers of Melody's drugs, and he was a frequent visitor to the house. But he wasn't like the usual criminals that hung around. He was well-dressed, good-looking, you know, had good dope. I mean, he was just a completely different situation. He wasn't coming over to just, like, come hang about. He had purpose when he came there. He was a businessman. He was definitely a businessman. Carrie would barely have been a teenager at this point, and the dashing Natividad stuck out because of his looks and his companions. When Natividad would come to our house, usually he would come alone, and he came to our house on a couple of different occasions with different people. One time he came with who I believe is Scott McAllister, and then the other time he came with someone who I believe is the guard from the um, prison. They pulled up in government vehicles. And I only know that now from working in the field of federal law and seeing government vehicles and knowing, you know. Well, we know that she definitely recognized a guard from the prison who she'd seen at the visitor's desk. So... That is the person who had to allow her mother, Melody, to go back and forth several times a day into the prison, you know, in and out of the prison, carrying drugs. That was the major game that was being played here. Beyond that, why other state cars would have been there, I don't know, except that, obviously, you can't deal drugs that openly into a prison without protection. So at some point or another, corrections officials state police officials are involved. She specifically did know and have detailed conversations with people. Scott McAllister, he came with Tim and they had conversations. And my mom was very much like talk, talk, talk. And she wouldn't shut up. My mom wouldn't shut up. She was like a conspiracy theorist. It drove me crazy. She couldn't keep anything quiet. I questioned Phil about Carrie's recollection of the players involved. She also believes that she saw Scott McAllister in her house. Did she mention that to you? Oh, yeah. She said that uh, she saw his picture in the paper. And she said, oh, yeah, I remember him. He was in our house. At this point, we want to stress that we have attempted to reach out to Scott McAllister and others mentioned in this podcast multiple times via phone, email, and certified letter requesting an interview and or statement regarding the murder of Michael Frankie. To this date, no one has agreed to our requests. But Carrie is adamant that correction officials were in and out of her home visiting her mother. Did you know what they were talking about? I would try to avoid it as much as possible, but she would always just blab her mouth um, about everything. And, oh, we got to have this important phone call. Oh, we got to have this call. They're going to call, and we're going to go in there, and we're going to have a call. And 
when they come, we're going to be in there, you know. And um, I just didn't pay attention to it all. But it was a big deal, that I know. A big, big deal. It was also around this time that Melody began to treat Carrie like currency, a possession she could trade for drugs and money. And this is how Carrie and Tim's arrangement began. That was really when I I started getting involved with him. And he started coming around and... um, and then he would just take me away, you know, kind of like take me away. And then, and I remember I was really intrigued with him. He was always on his motorcycle or in fan, a fancy car. And it was, you know, I much preferred to be there, you know, like, oh, I hated being at my mom's. It was just way better. But then it was always like I needed to shut up when I was around people that he was with and I was okay with that. Like, I was much, much happier doing that, like, than being at my mom's house. You're 14. He's how old? Mm, 20-something, 23, 20-something, I don't even know. What kind of relationship did you guys have? So I guess this is the weird thing is that, like, I don't know. Like, I think that she thought that she was going to be selling me for sex, and... At the time, I was still a virgin, you know? And when I went with him, you know, at first it was really, really tense. And um, I remember, like, him coming around at first, and he had gotten chlamydia. And so he was taking, like, pills for chlamydia. (laughs) Oh, God. At one point, he was like, are you, like, good with this? And I was like, I'm... I've never, like, done this. And he was like, you what? You've never, you know? And I'm like, oh. And maybe it was Carrie's innocence, or her young age, or just pity, but Tim Natividad did something decent. He didn't push himself on me at all. And then he's like, I paid your mom (laughs) for you to come with me. And I'm like... Oh, I think at that point I was just like, everything just like sunk in. And he was like, I'm going to take care of you. In a very heartbreaking way, Tim became more of a caretaker to Carrie than her own mother. It's like I have such a feeling of betrayal from the person who's supposed to protect you, but, but he paid my mom again and again. And he never, ever made me be with him. Never. So it was really confusing, you know? I thought I was in love with him, you know? <sighs> he bought me jewelry. He made sure I was fed. Carrie's home life was so unbearable that to her, time spent with Natividad was just better by comparison. Even when he would take her along on drug deals and worse. I'd go with him and I would be quiet and I would I wouldn't look if he didn't want me to look and uh he did a lot of really bad things you know a lot of really bad things and it was really confusing he was always really really good to me it was really really difficult to sort out it's hard when somebody's character is so conflicted, and I think he was a really conflicted person. I'd hear him, like, fighting with people in the other room all the time. 
think he just wanted to be like a big mobster. As much of a caretaker as Natividad may have been, and despite Carrie's fondness for him, he was dragging her into extremely dangerous situations. I remember one time we literally, like, picked up kilos of stuff, and I just was with him, and I'm literally, like, I was so, so high because the method or crank, whatever it was, was so strong that I was, like, wound up, and uh, I just didn't know what I was doing, you know? And I'm literally, like, lifting kilos. Like, I didn't know there were kilos, but I'm just helping him, like, load him into Shorty's van. Like, so many of them. A quick aside. Shorty is Shorty Harden, a drug-dealing cohort of Natividad who will also figure into the Frankie murder trial. Back to Carrie and Natividad. He was moving so much. I mean, probably, like... 50. And I wouldn't shut up because I was so high. And I mean, I was a young girl anyway, so I wouldn't shut up, but I just was so spun out. All I wanted was to not be at home. So that's all I wanted was really to go with him because it was better. Carrie would witness Natividad's irrational and violent side firsthand. We were at a house in, I don't even know where it was. I was too young to drive, and I didn't know exactly where, but, you know, we would go places, and there would be dealings or whatever they were doing. I don't know. I would never ask. I would sit outside. I would wait if I needed to wait in the car or in the van or in the kitchen or whatever. And this time, I was sitting in at a table with a woman, and he was in another room, and there was... A lot of shouting, and then there were some gunshots. Then the door opened, and somebody in the other room, obviously, I don't know if it was him, had shot one of the people that he was with and killed him. And he had them over his shoulder, and... um, I'm pretty sure it was the woman that I'm sitting with. It's her boyfriend or husband. And she just started screaming. And I mean, I've had nightmares about this day forever. But um, he takes them out and puts them in a trunk of a car. And then we drove in Shorty's van. And we took off and drove away and I went with him and I helped him unfortunately clean up the blood in the van because it was on him and it got in the van he looked at me and said we'll never ever speak of this again and I was so scared from that day you know and sometime after that is when someone supposedly taps Tim Natividad to have one of his prison connections kill Michael Frankie while out on a pass. Here's Kevin. The idea that they would get somebody out of the joint to do the murder seems a little overwhelming, I guess, to the average person. But you have to realize that, you know, guys like McAllister had been in and out of that prison thousands of times and had a key to every passageway, every booby hatch in the entire joint. And there's hundreds of them. And he was very familiar and very comfortable in the prison. And for years, 
you've been able to have this relationship with some of the inmates that you be able to profit from those relationships. So it is no stretch of the imagination that if you want somebody to commit a criminal act, where would you go to the farm that grows the criminal acts but the prison? And that you could take that person out and they would have the perfect alibi to commit the crime and get back in and who's going to be the wiser? So he had access to let anybody in or out that he wanted at any time. He could go in and out at his leisure, and he could take anybody out with him at his leisure and take them back at his leisure. Sounds like a pretty foolproof alibi if people think you're in prison. It's a pretty good alibi. Even if that were the case, in terms of Conrad Garcia, none of that would have been necessary because Garcia was already scheduled to be paroled the week before Mike Frankie was murdered. It was almost a little too convenient. But Conrad felt like he was getting set up, and he got scared. So he got himself into trouble that got him put in the hole just a few weeks before the murder. He was going to be the guy. Years after Michael's murder, when the theories regarding Tim Natividad and Scott McAllister began to emerge, Kevin wanted to speak to Conrad Garcia face-to-face to confirm the things he'd heard. So he tracked him down at a halfway house in Portland. I went up there and asked the guy I'd like to meet Conrad Garcia, and he wanted your, my name, sign in. And he said, I don't know if he wants to talk to you because I know why you're here. Uh, and he went and talked to Conrad, and Conrad came out. And he said, let's go sit down. i got some things to tell you. You know, you expect a pretty rough character. But he seemed like a, uh, he was very muscular and, you know, had obviously been on, in the weight room a lot. He said that he felt guilty that Mike was dead, that he could have prevented it if he'd opened his mouth sooner. And he started crying. And I started crying to see him crying. And he apologized to me that he didn't stop it. He said, your brother was a good man, and he shouldn't have died. And I could have prevented it, and I didn't. And I said, how could you have prevented it? And he said, what I told the police was not everything that I could have told them. I knew specifically that Tim Natividad wanted me to kill Mike Frankie, not just a big guy with corrections. It was specifically Mike Frankie. On the next murder in Oregon, another woman linked with Tim Natividad reveals his obsession with his weapon of choice. Tim always carried a knife. Tim had a huge knife collection. With controlling her. Tim was threatening to kill me, my family. And with murder. I told God, you know, I'm ready. He's going to kill me. I'm ready. Murder in Oregon is hosted by Lauren Bright Pacheco and Phil Stanford. Executive producers are Noel Brown, Lauren Bright Pacheco, and Phil Stanford. Supervising producer and lead editor is Taylor Shacoin. Sound design by Tristan McNeil. Story editing by Matt Riddle. Written by Phil Stanford, Matt Riddle, and Lauren Bright Pacheco. Music written and performed by the Diamond Street Players and mixed by Taylor Shacoin. With music supervision by Noel Brown. 
Additional music by Tristan McNeil. Murder in Oregon is a production of iHeartRadio. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.